Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Yo. Yo! <laughs> we had the yo conversation a while ago. I thought we'd agreed that we were of a certain age and we didn't say yo to each oh, other. All right, well, I'm sort of leaning into it. It's not a midlife crisis, is it? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> we had one of those, well, yeah. yeah. What do you think this is about? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sunshine. You've had a sharp haircut, by the way. Thank you very much, although I'm, I'm mourning because the uh, young woman who's cut my hair at the barbershop around the corner for a couple of years, she told me today that she's moving to Ibiza next week and well, now I've got to go through the palaver. Well, you just visit her in Ibiza every time you want a haircut. If, you, if you'd have become uh, Prime Minister, would you have given your barber an MBE? Definitely. So that's what Cameron did, isn't it? He didn't. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely did, yeah. Really? Yes. Well, I suppose the barber sort of gets credit for having covered up his bald patch or something. Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) Services to bald patches. Maybe Donald Trump needs needs, needs the services. A presidential medal for his barber. He didn't really give an MB to his barber. Yeah, he did, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. I don't know if it was, you know, just for the work involving his own head. I think maybe he did charity work as well. Or he had wider sort of... yeah. Hair, hair, hair services. Yes. Amazing. God, I didn't know that. When asked about the honour for Carbozziero, that's the guy's name, Cameron's official spokesman said, gosh, decisions around honours, there's an independent process. <laughs> it's just coincidental. <laughs> oh, I think the people in the hairdressing industry deserve some uh, you know, recognition. I mean, it's what, I think it's what lots of people think, isn't it? You know, all of these hairdressers who aren't properly recognised. Oh, there you, you go. Missed, up, missed opportunity for you there back in the day. Yeah. Could have made some gag about Tory cuts. I think I probably had resigned by then, actually, but thanks for rubbing <laughs> in. Uh, so um, be- before we get into what we're talking about this week we should mention our next live show oh yes we should which is going to be in bristol on the 13th of april you know one of my favorite things about bristol go on just outside the train station there is a place i don't know whether it's still there but i haven't been for a little bit of time but they make very nice crepes Uh aha yeah I, i often buy a crepe from there if i've got time i actually always tend to be you know, about get to trains about like one and a half minutes before they're due to go. But in Bristol, I sort of have an incentive to turn up slightly earlier. Well, we can go get for a we nice can, crepe. We can go for crepes. Yeah. We are going to be at the Anson Rooms Friday the 13th of April. We will be full of crepes. We'll be very content. And it's, it's going to be our um, next live show and tickets are available now. We've made one of these short URLs. Yep. It's bit.ly stroke cheerful bristol that's bit dot ly stroke cheerful bristol and it's gonna be great fun splendid time is guaranteed splendid time is so please come along be there or be square or be there and be square we don't mind yeah with we're certainly going to be yes so we should tell you what we're going to be talking about on this week's podcast we're going to be talking about what seems like an epidemic problem we now have again of homelessness uh, across the country and what can be done about it. And in particular, we're going to be talking about an idea called Housing First, which has been pioneered in Finland, which is a way to 
really tackle homelessness. It's worked in Finland. We've been talking about its application across the country here. I mean, the numbers are quite shocking. Even on the government's own definition of the statistics, there's been a 169% increase since 2010. So it's more than doubling uh, in the number of rough sleepers. Uh, And there's a distinction between rough sleepers, so people are out on the streets, and homeless people, so people who don't have proper permanent accommodation and are temporary bed and breakfast and other accommodation. The number of people on the government estimates, which is 4,750 rough sleepers across England, is, according to um, Harriet Watt University, which does one of the most reliable studies on this, it's probably an underestimate, probably more like 8,000 across England and 9,000 across uh, Great Britain. It got better under the Labour government. It's got a lot worse. Uh, The government is now belatedly trying to do stuff. But, you know, I mean, uh, just in preparation for this, People will remember that there was a a case that got a lot of attention, which was a homeless person who was spending a lot of their time in Westminster Tube Station just outside Parliament dying. And I was just looking in advance of, of our discussion today. And if you go through the local papers, I just Googled, literally Googled homeless deaths, because I thought, where's the you know, proper compendium of where this is happening? It's like, it was unbelievable what ca- what came up. I just want to give you a sample of it. This is from the Ryan Battle Observer um, on January the 4th. The MP for Hastings and Ryan Barad has called the three homeless deaths since Christmas uh, a tragedy uh, and vowed to help eliminate rough sleeping. Then this is from the Yorkshire Evening Post, Monday the 8th of January, homeless woman found dead in Leeds City Centre. Then this is Kent Online, 12th of January, homeless man Neil Martin dies living on streets. Uh, this is uh, about Leicester from the Leicester Mercury, the 15th of January, uh, about a man found dead in Leicester Park. I could go on and on. And that's right across the country. So in a way, the the, the terrible incident in terms of Westminster got the attention, and, and rightly so. But if you look, it's just happening across the country. And there are some things that you think that's a really long-term problem, which is going to take a long time to solve. The numbers of people we're talking about, it's terrible for those people. But it, but but by the scale of a population of 65 million people, it must be soluble. That's what I think. You know, this is not like some complicated rocket science for, for how do you solve it. And, and there is a really good idea that has been trialled in different countries, actually implemented in different countries, which is a, is a reason to be changed. Which, which won't solve the whole problem, but as far as we can tell, will make a big indent and alongside other things. I mean, this is a soluble problem. I think that's what we want people to know um, and, and, and hear about some of the ways to do it. And uh, as well as that, the usual bits and pieces, we've had lots of response to last week's episode uh, about the tax havens. And we'll be talking through some of that and through some of the other email that we've received and into pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We're joined by comedian Helen Keane. Talking of emails. Mm. The interweb is ablaze (laughs) with my sandwich idea. You know, it's not hygienic, don't you? (laughs) What's not hygienic? All these uh, hundreds of people every day rummaging the rounded sandwich ingredients. No, I think Ella has an answer to this. Okay. Hired and Jeff, I want Ed to know that I think his make-your-own-sandwich-shop idea is brilliant, and I was sad that it didn't get the appreciation it deserved. Well, I mean, she must be talking only about one person when she's saying it didn't get the appreciation (laughs) it deserved, and that's you, matey. Popeye. Uh, as someone who can't stomach butter or mayo, I'm totally excluded, excluded yeah. from the shop bought sandwich market. And Ed's idea would definitely be a reason to be cheerful. So, right, that's Ella. But mm. I mean, it's not just Ella here. We've got Stephen from Fife, mm. gents, 
Ed is my kind of genius. I love the... Don't snigger. That's a, it's unbecoming. Have any of these people got a catering experience? They're all related to me. I love the MYO sandwich concept, but unfortunately it's already been tried in the UK and fallen by the wayside, just like me. I reckon it just arrived too, <laughs> too soon. I've been tried in the UK. That's true, actually. I tried in the UK, fell by the wayside and arrived too soon. I think it's just like the MYO. Uh, the, draw, the draw is exactly as Ed described. You make the sandwich or roll, wrap. This is where the comparison with me changes. Yes, yeah, yeah. You make the sandwich or roll, wrap, baked potato, etc., to your liking, but you have a plethora of lovely ingredients to choose from. It was great, not dramatically expensive, and well laid out on a conveyor belt style. I seem to recall they had a separate offering for breakfast pre-work. Uh, you could prepare your own toast porridge muesli. It was great, or at least the one I used to go to in the West End of Edinburgh. We had, a, I think, another one from Scotland as well. In the early 2000s, it was great. Sadly, it seems to be no more, and there's very little about it online. <laughs> a bit like me. It may or may not but still be a thing in Oz, and it does seem to be, it won the best sandwich of the year or something shop in uh, Oz in uh, 2012. The time is right for the Jeffocracy to resurrect this idea or at least open up a franchise once the T-shirt printing business dries up. <laughs> and then I had somebody on, on the internet saying that they approved of my war on Goop. They were going to join the war on Goop. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's good to see that you're devoting your not inconsiderable talents to uh, but you, you such, know, you weight, such tell, a weighty issue. But you can tell when it's sort of... You know, the interesting thing is, I said to Jeffrey Robinson, you remember Jeffrey Robinson was a minister in the Labour government. Yes. We had some, like, cafeteria or kiosk in the Treasury. And I said, this is like 1997, there's this thing called the Seattle... So this is the honeymoon period. This this isn't like 2009 and it's running out of steam. Yeah. So I said, we should. this is when, like, Starbucks and Costa and all these people weren't around. And I said, look, these coffee shops are going to be a really big thing. There's this thing called the Seattle Coffee Company, which get them to come into the Treasury. Anyway, it never happened. But I kind of knew even at that point. So so basically I'm saying this because I'm ahead of the curve. (laughs) (laughs) And the sandwich thing is coming. And when some other... So and so makes <laughs> millions of pounds from the sandwich concept. You'll be like, God, you were right about the sandwich concept. Well, it's a reason to be cheerful that people are backing you up. People Admittedly, none of them with entrepreneurial or catering experience. Well, how do you know? I don't think you should like it. I, I jump to conclusions about Ella these and people Stephen would be, from these Five. People would be mentioning it if there was any catering experience. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So on the line from Finland, we have Juha Karkinen, who is the chief executive of the Y Foundation, which provides over 16,000 low-cost flats to homeless people in Finland. It's been a key part of the Housing First project. Hello, Juha. Hello. Uh, Thank you for joining us. It's claimed that Finland has fairly much eradicated homelessness. Can you give us an idea of how severe the problem was prior to 2008 when the new approach came in and and particularly how it was there, for example, in the 1980s? Well, uh, when we started to make statistics about homelessness in the 80s, we had around 20,000 homeless people in Finland. So it was quite severe, the problem. But there were several national programs before 2008 already so we managed to reduce the homelessness. But 2008 was a kind of game changer for us because then we adopted housing first. And after that, we have been able to reduce the most severe form of homelessness, people sleeping rough and people living in temporary accommodation. So that has been the, the biggest change since 2008. Now we have around 6,500 
single homeless persons. 84% of them are people living temporarily with friends and relatives. So in, in those figures maybe tell that we don't actually have street homelessness as a phenomenon anymore in, in Finland. So as I understand it, the big insight of Housing First is that you give people permanent accommodation, not temporary accommodation, not hostels, but just permanent accommodation without sort of asking lots of other questions, and then you provide the support. Is that right? Yes, exactly. It means that it's unconditional giving a low-cost rental apartment. But the important element is that it's a independent rental apartment. It can be in scattered housing. We have a lot of that, but also it can be in a supported housing unit where also the other neighbors may be former homeless persons. But in in that kind of units, it's possible to provide more intensive support because there are a lot of long-term homeless people who need actually quite a lot of support to cope in in their everyday life. And am I right in thinking that you've closed almost all of your shelters as a sign of your success in a way. Yes, that's true. And Helsinki, the capital, is a good example. When this program in 2008 was started, we had around 600 bed places in shelters and hostels. And now there's one emergency centre with 52 bed places. So that most clearly illustrates the change that has happened in, in Finland. And you have a lot of visitors from around the world to come and uh, look at how these policies have worked. What are the pieces of advice that you give to them? What are the foundations of making Housing First work? Uh, well, I think that the most imp- important element or the most important advice that I can give is that this is an effort that needs public involvement. It, it means the public has to have a leading or coordinating role And it also means that it's possible if you can build a strong enough partnership between the main actors. So in Finland, this has been a joint project of ministries, uh, main cities and NGOs, both national and local, working towards the same goal. And, And of course, it helps a lot if you have very concrete goals. How many homeless persons you are planning to to get proper housing and How are you going to finance it? Because you have to remember that in 2008, when we started this national program, also the economic recession hit Finland. All these partners, cities and the ministries were ready to get involved in this project. And have you yet reached your goals, Juhar, or do you have further to go? We know that there are still homeless persons. And as long as there is one single homeless Our our job is not finished yet. So now we are concentrating on building special services for homeless women and also the amount of homeless young people under 25. It's, in our opinion, alarming. So we have to do something special with that group also. Juha, thank you so much for joining us and for telling uh, us about the inspiring experience in Finland. Thank you and good luck to your work also. Listening to that, we've got Matt Downey, Director of Policy and External Affairs at Crisis. Thank you for joining us, Matt. Pleasure. Finland, is it all it's cracked up to be? Uh, actually, it's more, I think, than, than you perhaps heard there. The, the, uh, Finnish the, modesty. Well, well the, the miracle that's happened is, is in context, if you think about kind of 2008 onwards, when, when the rest of Europe, particularly Europe, was seeing homelessness go up and up and up, theirs started going down. 
um, just at the point when you know everyone else was was wondering what on earth to do about it. I, I have, ha- have had the opportunity to go out and see, and you do have an experience of walking around a major European capital city and realizing that the the thing you get used to in London and the major cities of this country and around Europe isn't there. So it's the cause of it, the the financial downturn, and then austerity implemented as a result of it. Is that common across a lot of European countries? What happened here and what happened in a lot of other countries was that was the kind of basic safety net that was there was eroded. And then some of the things that were kind of background causes got worse. So the housing crisis in most Western European countries and the kind of withdrawal of benefits that were making a difference and kind of some of the trends in migration as well were leading to an alarming rise, which is still there in this country. We've seen rough sleeping go up more than 150% in the last eight years. So Finland was doing something incredible. And that was against the same backdrop that everybody else... That's right. It's important to say that. And and, and I think that what, what... they what they realized was that their their early successes in in getting people immediately into housing rather than spending the time and the money getting people ready for housing which is a sort of uh, oxymoron really was bearing real success and so that what they realized was that they should and could get everybody housed and instead of having people go through a system whereby they have to demonstrate that they're ready to be housed by being clean or sane or sober they realized everybody of course everyone's ready to be housed the question is uh, what support do you then need once you're housed and talk us through the history of homelessness here in the uk because when i was growing up in the 1980s and indeed in the 1990s we had kind of a similar situation to what felt like a similar situation to now people sleeping in doorways people sleeping rough it did get better didn't it yeah so i I think the the best place to start with the history of this is kathy come home so 50 years ago that that uh, drama was shown and it portrayed a family whose children were taken away when they lost their home. About 10 years after that, the, the sort of world-leading legislation in 1977 came in to say that if you are a family with dependent children, you will be provided, as long as you're homeless, you'll be provided with, with social housing, with a, with a place to live. But that, that sort of um, amazing step forward also introduced a sort of prejudice within the system that said, if you're not that group, so if you're if you're a single man, if you're you know a single household or childless couple, actually you wouldn't be a priority. Right. So it's no accident that when you do see people um, sleeping rough or in night shelters or hostels, it's that group of people. So we have half a safety net. And what happened in the in the kind of eighties uh, is that is that the increases in. Uh, rough sleeping led to a lot of political attention and it was actually the major government around 96 that started what was called the Rough Sleepers Initiative that led to the Blair years taking that on and there was a sort of czar called uh, Louise Casey who took on the target of reducing rough sleeping in England by two thirds and hit the target. What happened was was that a lot of those... Was that money or was it... It wasn't the housing first philosophy, Absolutely. it was other things. No, so so uh, largely what that was about was twisting the arms of housing associations, opening new provision in terms of hostels and night shelters and getting people off the streets. And it was a focus on that. It wasn't a focus on resolving homelessness uh, in its wider sense. So... The tragedy of that was that despite hitting that figure, about 40% of the people that were taken off the street then returned afterwards. Right. So what we learned was that dealing with rough sleeping alone isn't going to solve the problem of homelessness. And so about 9,000 people sleep rough on any given night in England, Scotland and Wales. But above that, there's about 40,000 others in hostels and night shelters. Then there's sofa surfers and people on public transport. And the, the total figure is about 250,000 people. Right. What's really important about the Finnish example is it, it, it completely changes the philosophy of the response to that. What they've 
demonstrated is if if you complete that safety net so that everyone is considered uh, worthy and and ready for housing when they when they're homeless uh, what you can do is what we've done for families with dependent children you complete that safety net so it's not free it's not easy because for people with complex needs for people with you know um the need for all sorts of support that costs money it costs you know uh, political attention and coordination but it is absolutely possible and probably would save an awful lot of money and just explain matt just in simple terms how it would be different if you had housing first in the uk from what it is now so the big difference would be that when somebody is is found to be homeless, identified even at r- being at risk of homelessness, they are immediately placed into accommodation, not uh, homelessness accommodation, mainstream real right. accommodation. Right. Um, and just like you and I, most homeless people can deal with their problems if they've got somewhere to live. Right. They can deal with them much better. So if you take that philosophy and you remove this kind of deserving, undeserving homeless sort of categorization, you can do something incredible. And so this is an idea that, that took off, first of all, in the States in the 90s. It was actually the Bush administration that started pouring money into this happening uh, with real success in, in New York and other places. Other people started noticing. But because um, in this country we have quite a well-developed um, and quite sort of thoughtful response to, to homelessness, we're probably one of the last countries to consider this as something that we could take on at scale. Because there's already a lot of really good work that happens, but this is this as a sort of mind shift is it might be slightly more difficult um, than in some other countries. And on housing first itself, before we go wider, the government has provided funding for pilots in Greater Manchester, the West Midlands, and Liverpool. And in a moment, we're going to be speaking to Rebecca Evans, the Welsh minister, who is starting to do this in Wales. So, so it is starting. Is that right? Yeah. So there are pilots. We did uh, lose an argument, which was when you've got something so obvious right and evidence-based around the world maybe you don't need to pilot it but um we we walked into a sort of white machine with that and lost but nevertheless i, I will say that the government have absolutely um, got behind the principle and they want to see that it does work they want to see it working in in those three city regions so do we because really time is of the essence you know we've just been through another um catastrophic winter with people freezing to death on our streets and you know we don't have the support systems to cope with that so, yes, it'd be fantastic if, if the government in England takes this forward. We, we think that uh, in Wales they're going to, and in Scotland, it is already a sort of declared national policy, which they'll move towards implementing across the country. And if we want to do it across England... How much is it going to cost? The, the calculations we did for the Liverpool um, city region, which is one of the pilot areas, was was that actually over time it will probably save money over a kind but of. But the outlay period. would be. But are we talking about hundreds of millions across the country? Are we talking about billions to do housing? Certainly first? not billions, right. uh, but we are talking millions. Let, let's not pretend this is something that doesn't need investment. Of course, it does. And of is course. that investment the the government investing in social housing or housing trusts and contracts with private landlords? And so one of the great things about Finland is they've got this. This graph that shows the numbers of homeless people going down at exactly the same rate as the numbers of additional homes that are being available to them. So in the most simple sense, um, the answer to homelessness, guess what, is housing. And not just that, obviously, but uh, the investment in housing will be the key um, thing here. So go back to 2010 and the kind of affordable homes program was delivering about 40,000 new homes a year. We can do that again. And if if we did that, 
and they were absolutely available for this group of people, we could end homelessness in this country. Oh, and you're gonna, we need to put then the people who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless higher up the queue. I mean, just to be clear about the implications of this, yes? There's a race to the bottom answer to that, which is that let's compete over who's most deserving. I think the answer is that, of course, families with dependent children should always sure. continue to be a priority, but let's add to the amount of people we can give priority to by additional housing rather than try and you know, force some people slightly higher up the queue and, and some people lower. You're not saying that Housing First on its own is a panacea, are you? Because there are going to be some people for whom it doesn't work. And there, you know, there are already people as as a sort of Housing First starts getting into the political bloodstream, there are already people starting to say, well, hang on a minute, it won't work on its own. So just say a bit about that. So this is not a silver bullet and it shouldn't be represented as such. And I don't think anyone's saying it is. But alongside a couple of other things that really matter, it could make a difference. And, and the, probably the two things I would point to are, first and foremost, the best way of dealing with homelessness is to prevent it in the first place. So we know where homelessness comes from. Uh, by and large, the leading cause now is people just being thrown out of uh, private tenancies because they can't afford their rent. So we need to do something about the private rented market. But we still see large numbers of people coming out of state institutions. So the care system, prison, people um, thrown out of the asylum system, with nowhere to go. Um, we still see a small number of people coming out of the armed forces, uh, you know, hospitals, that kind of stuff. All of that is completely available in terms of state responses. So homelessness prevention is not just the business of local authorities when you turn up with your eviction notice. It should be everyone's business. And that's what the Homelessness Reduction Act is all about, which comes into force in April. So this was a bill sponsored by Bob Blackman, a Conservative MP, and it was then backed by the government. And that is going to put a duty on local authorities to prevent homelessness. Yeah, right. Yeah. So in Wales, they introduced something in 2015. It was very similar. And what they saw was that in the first year of that, they had nearly 70% reduction in the need to rehouse people, which is an astonishing, um, you know, success for any social policy. So what we decided to do was try and make that happen in England as well. And it comes into force. And it was very so, much pushed by crisis. Absolutely. Yes. And, and, and the reason for pushing it was because it not only prevents homelessness, but it takes off the kind of deserving, undeserving label as well. So everybody is entitled to prevention, doesn't matter who you are. But doesn't that mean need money? I mean, I know there is 70 million behind this for local authorities, but but I can't help thinking... Local authorities would be doing that if they had the money, wouldn't they? So you're right in that we don't quite know how much it's going to cost yet. So the right. government have said £77 million. I don't know if that's enough. Right. Um, certainly some of your colleagues in the House were strongly saying that it needed to be more right. more than that, and we'll see. And if it does need to be more, then certainly crisis will be shouting from the hills for the money, absolutely. And let me ask you about welfare, because I, don't, I can't help feeling that partly if we don't focus on what's happening to the Social Security benefits, we're going to miss lots of the, if you like, the supply factors to homelessness, the things that are making homelessness happen. We've got most of the welfare cuts planned by the government still to come. We've got this, it's just come in, I think, this restriction of housing benefit for 18 to 21-year-olds, so young people. You know, we've got issues around universal credit. I mean, just tell us about that as a part of this, because because it seems to me to be big as an underlying cause for why we've seen this big rise in homelessness Absolutely. over the last eight years. Yeah, so recently the um, National Audit Office and the Public Accounts Committee looked into this, and, they, and what they said was the government in England has a sort of uh, strangely kind of schizophrenic approach to this, where um, there is, on the one hand, an enormous amount of effort and money going into resolve homelessness, but on the other, you've got policies that are almost feel like they're designed to create it. So if you if you uh, make sure that in lots of areas of the country housing benefit doesn't cover rent, 
then we we know what the the consequence of that is going to be. So and and it has come to pass, and that's the reason why the leading cause of homelessness is essentially not being able to pay your rent. Um, but there are other things too that, that have just felt really kind of pernicious. So things like the sanctions regime, you know. We see in our services every day people who are, you know, have effectively lost out in a system they couldn't navigate um, when they were just thrown off of their benefits because they they didn't, you know, meet appointments, you know. And if you're somebody living on the streets or in a in a night shelter or whatever, what chance have you got in that system? So it feels like the the odds are stacked against those things. And and probably the first and, and most important thing to do is make sure that universal credit or housing benefit or whatever it's called where, where you get it um, actually covers the rent. It's a really simple principle. And it doesn't for a lot of people, is yeah, that right? Not everywhere. And there are places where it does, but the the in the southeast and you know and in, in where the property market's overheated, forget it. And for for young people, do you need something specific which is different from the housing first idea? So the 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 thing that um marks young people and homelessness as different is that quite often the cause of that is relationship breakdown in the home. So um, there's a kind of when that happens, how do you respond to it? And and cutting housing benefit entirely is uh, not a good response if you want to stop homelessness. Um, but also the, the sort of careful work that needs to happen to repair relationships, you know, between parents and, and their children, or if it's not going to be repaired, provide some form of accommodation um, requires money. It requires expertise. So there, there, there are trials of housing first for youth in Scotland and in Ireland, um, which is a slightly morphed version of it because you don't, you know, putting somebody in their own kind of isolated flat when they've just come out of living with their parents might not be the answer. You know, you and I probably didn't do that when we first moved out of our, our, our family homes. We probably had flat chairs and things like that. So it needs careful and, and different responses, but also, we can also f- find where people are coming from. So those people coming out of the care system, for example, they're young people that we are throwing out into homelessness far too often. There are lots of problems that we talk about on this podcast which feel big and intractable. My impression about this is it is a massive problem. I mean, it's a shameful for our society, but it isn't insoluble, is it? No, we find ourselves in a sort of strange paradox at the moment where the problem's getting much, much worse, but the clarity of solutions is probably better than we've ever had. And we can now actually point at examples of it happening. So Finland, but not just Finland, there are places around the world where cities and and towns are doing it in Scandinavia and Northern Europe um, and North America. And uh, so in that context and with our numbers, so so 9,000 people sleeping rough feels shameful, but it's tiny. It is absolutely tiny. Uh, 40,000 people living in hostels and night shelters is nothing compared to the scale of the issue you see in lots of other countries. You know, all of our homelessness adds up to pretty much all there is in New York alone. You know, so we know we can do this. Uh, It's about political activity. And I think, you know, we are at a stage where um, politicians are feeling the heat and they want to do something about it. The answer, the answer has to be kind of reflecting back to what you were saying, Ed, that not a knee-jerk kind of let's just get people off the streets and forget about it. Let's deal with the causes as well as the kind of long-term solutions. And so we have this thing called the Jeffocracy. And if you were the housing minister in the Jeffocracy, what would you do? I asked my colleagues uh, about this because I thought this might come up. The, the, the conclusion to this uh, question is that a, we need to get rid of anything that discriminates. So if, if you can be deser- an undeserving homeless person, forget it. So let's get rid of that. And B, let's work out how many homes we need to get all of those people and the ones that are coming down the line 
into housing. And then I suppose I'd ask Jeff as Supreme Leader whether it would be okay to speak to the shadow housing minister and put this together as a plan that won't fall down next time there's a changing changing government. Oh, there won't be a changing government. (laughs) (laughs) It's permanent Jeffocracy. Just one other question, which is, I, I, I noticed that one of the things that happened during the horrendous cold snap was that I think there was heightened concern because there was awareness that people were literally dying on our streets and people were more inclined to talk to homeless people on the streets and so on. If somebody comes across, to, you know, people are passing homeless people all the all the time, you know, what can they do to help? I mean, what what would you say about what they can do? Because there is an organisation called Street Link, I think. Um, so just t- because I think, you know, sometimes people can feel incredibly powerless. What should I do? Tell tell us a little bit about what people can do. Yeah. So I think the first thing is to uh, don't feel uncomfortable. Every, everyone faces that. And if you don't feel like you can speak to the person, you don't feel like it's safe, then, then don't do that. And uh, that's absolutely fine. But there's a, there is always something you can do, which is to call uh, Street Link or to go onto the website or they have an app. And what that does is you can report um, uh, an incident of rough sleeping and the local authorities outreach team then comes out to see the person. And you know then they'll get back to you and tell you what happened. Um, give you an update about what happened. It's a fantastic service. It's very oversubscribed at the moment uh, because you're right, the public are uh, sort of wondering what to do and extremely worried about people on our streets. But there is something you can do. And and what is public support like for this? I I worry about a certain type of person who can claim, oh, here we go, people getting something for nothing. Does, Does that exist as an argument? Is it something you've knocked up against? Well, the public support for ending homelessness is absolutely resolute. You should, you should see the the um, tens of thousands of people that, that um, either volunteer with us or want to volunteer with us. The Street Link system is overwhelmed with concerned members of the public. Um, that's not to say that there wouldn't be you know, certain um, parts of, of the public that would say, hang on a second, why are these people who have made mistakes in life uh, are getting on the, on the housing ladder? Um, we often say that you know, if, if you went to A&E and uh, the person in, uh, in front of you had uh, you know a headache and you had your arms and legs hanging off, you should probably go in front of them. A lot of the people who we're talking about in terms of housing first are the most extreme cases of homelessness and no one could argue that it's right to keep people living on the streets. So thank you, Matt Downey, Director of Policy and External Affairs at Crisis. Thank you. So I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Rebecca Evans AM, who's a Minister for Housing and Regeneration in the Welsh Government. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure. So tell us a bit about Housing First, which we're talking about today in Wales, because you're starting to roll this out, aren't you? Can you give some examples of of how it's going? That's right. Uh, Welsh Government has invested uh, funded in the Housing First model and we've developed specific um, principles for Housing First here in Wales and it really does start from the basic principle that housing is a fundamental human right. So our principles really put the individual at the centre in terms of the choice and control that they should have but it's about removing all of those kind of um, strings attached if you like that some people often face when trying to get into housing. For example they might 
go into emergency housing first, then onto a pod, then into a hostel, and then eventually into accommodation if they're willing to sign up to certain things such as um, entering into substance misuse schemes. This model really turns things on its head and puts um, the person into a, into a secure accommodation in the first place and then looks to build the support around them. And from your early um, indications, do you think it's working? Are you hopeful about the impact of Housing First? Early indications are that it is working and that it is managing to get people into accommodation. And one of the reasons that it is working is because we've built up strong relations with the private rented sector. So we're working, for example, to ensure that Welsh Government's able to provide bonds and to take out some of the risk that some people might uh, might experience. So that's like the deposit, is it, on the house to, to get the homeless person into housing? Having a bond uh, really takes away some of the risk uh, for the landlords in the private rented sector because uh, they're quite uh, quite understandably a little bit wary about taking people who don't have a history of a secure tenancy. So by being able to uh, to provide that level of certainty for them, it takes away that risk and we've been able to engage really well. So lots of the schemes have already had success in terms of putting people into secure housing in the private rented sector, which I think is an exciting new approach because that sector is going to become increasingly important uh, in the future. And do you see this Housing First model rolling out across Wales? And, and, and over what time scale do you think that might be possible? I would like to see Housing First rolled out in all communities, really, where it's needed across Wales. We have some uh, serious uh, rough sleeping issues, particularly in some of our cities. But Housing First is actually a model which is applicable to any kind of communities. Uh, On Anglesey, for example, Housing First has been working for quite some time. And Anglesey is a very rural community. So we know that Housing First actually is applicable and appropriate for all kinds of communities. And it's not just good for the individual. It's actually uh, good for the public purse as well because we know that there's a cost saving when we introduce the housing first model. It costs around £20,000 to keep someone rough sleeping on the streets in Wales, whereas our evidence shows that it's uh, less than £13,000 if you uh, support them through a housing first model. And then, of course, there's the knock-on impact uh, in terms of savings to the National Health Service and so on. So I think that people do understand that housing first is a model that's not just Mental, that is informed by ad- adverse childhood experiences and that's trauma-informed and that is a uh, compassionate but sensible way of supporting some of the most vulnerable people. That's great. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. That's a pleasure. Thank you very much. So what do you think? I think the, the problem at the moment seems so acute and I think people up and down the country are seeing it on a daily basis and reading these terrible stories about people dying whilst sleeping rough. So I think the public are behind it. I don't think there's much of a sense of the the undeserving homeless, which crops up sometimes in the right-wing press. So there's something to feel cheerful about there, that the public will would be behind a big idea like this. Yeah, I mean, but it is shameful for us all, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're one of the richest countries in the world. We've got people dying on our streets. I mean, and it is so unnecessary um, you know, and so soluble. That's what's sort of uh, terrible about it. I, I think you're right, though. I think, you know, look, there's a concept which people can get behind. We're not saying it's on its own is the answer, but it's clearly a big part of the answer. The finished example shows that. And we should just bloody well get on with it. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
If you've got thoughts about the discussion on homelessness or ideas for future shows, you can email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast and also on Instagram at the same address. And you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. And does, does that go for any venture capitalists who want to invest in your make your own sandwich chain? Yes. And talking of that, you thought the email that I was about to read was about tax havens, and it is. But the trick here is that Claire Hutton also says this before we get on to the slightly less important stuff of tax havens. Ed might be interested to know that Glasgow used to have a couple of sandwich shops called MYO. I wonder if you can guess what that stands for. Make your own. They used to make your own salad, sandwiches, wraps, paninis, and baked potatoes. It was amazing. They would wear your sandwich. If you'd like, you'd been overloaded. You'd be charged extra. They sadly closed. Uh, so I'm suggesting it's not a viable I don't think business, business model. model is really that unrealistic. I have very fond memories, good for veggies. Every town should have one. Yeah. You see? Okay. So look, okay. it's just breaking out all over. And but I just want to be clear here, Ed doesn't want to make any money out of the make your no, own sandwich no. business. Claire, Claire, it's an altruistic move, right, to make the world a better place. So, Social enterprise. Exactly. Claire also says, this week's episode on Tax Haven was enlightening. It's a subject which always seems quite confusing. I was glad to get a little clarity. There's one aspect you didn't cover, which I still don't understand, though, the role of Scottish Limited Partnerships, SLPs. They get reported as being a particular problem. Indeed, my hometown of Edinburgh apparently has a number of innocuous-looking residential properties, which are each the registered address of hundreds of anonymous shell companies in the form of SLPs, potentially responsible for billions of pounds of money laundering. I've read that the responsibility for the law that allows this rests with Westminster, but I've never understood why something that seems to be a specifically Scottish entity should be dealt with by Westminster rather than under Scottish law. Can you provide any insight? Well, I can't provide a comprehensive insight, but we I can say this, which is there's a Transparency International last year um, noted that there were new rules coming in uh, in relation to SLPs. My understanding is that what happened was that the government introduced rules that you had to provide a person of significant control around companies. This was in 2016, but not around Scottish limited partnerships. So Surprise, surprise, in 2016, more SLPs were registered, 5,215, than in the century after they were introduced in 1907, according <laughs> to Transparency International. 74% of SLPs set up in the last 10 years are registered to just 10 Scottish addresses. 71% of SLPs registered during 2016 were controlled by corporate partners based in secrecy jurisdictions like the Seychelles, Belize and Dominica. The law is apparently now changing, so the same rules are going to have to apply to Scottish Limited Partnership. That's my understanding, but others may may have more to say on that. So there are just obviously accountants combing this stuff and noticing where their legislation hasn't quite Indeed. caught up and looking for those loopholes. Indeed. Uh, this comes from Sasha, who says, Dear Ed and Jeff, I was really interested in Pippa's project. This was Pippa Evans on last week's episode. The Sunday Assembly, mirroring church communities from a non-religious perspective. There's a definite need to foster these kinds of secular initiatives and fill in some of the societal gaps created by our shift towards non-religious belief systems. Like the sandwich assembly. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe you could throw that into Sunday the Sunday assembly, the sandwich assembly. <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I, if I was Pippa, a global I'd be movement. A unhappy that you were taking her idea and introducing sandwiches and excluding it's her from it. It's a separate idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a global movement around make your own sandwiches. Sasha so says... It's spiritual. Sasha so says, I am Without a course leader... 
at the new School of Psychotherapy and Counselling, where we've just created the new MA in Existential and Humanist Pastoral Care in collaboration with Humanists UK. And this trains chaplains from a non-religious perspective using philosophical ideas. Uh, it's a really exciting course, first of its kind in the UK. The Netherlands is at the forefront of this movement, and we hope to establish chaplains across a range of sectors such as healthcare, education, the prison service, etc., to better meet the needs of the British population, which is increasingly non-religious. My ex is a humanist celebrant, so she goes around doing weddings. Oh, great. Um, and I know that the humanists are lobbying Parliament at the moment because in Scotland it's legal to be married by a humanist celebrant, but in England and I think Wales, um, you have to go and sort of do it on the quiet with an official registrar in a registry office. What well, then do the humanists? And then do the humanists, uh, right. and, and you know, okay. else in other countries, the humanists Sounds- can just do weddings and funerals and so on. I think we should do divorce, by the way, on on uh, an episode. Is there something you need to tell me? Nope, but because there's no no fault divorce in the UK, so getting divorced is more difficult than you might think. Why have you been looking into this? No, I haven't. Somebody told me about it. Was it your wife? Um, Asking for a friend. <laughs> oh, and there was just one more thing. Do you remember uh, Jake Yap? The Yapster, yeah. And he had his idea uh, about hydrogen. And then last week we had an email explaining why why it wasn't viable. Well, Ross emailed in to say, hi, Jeff and Ed. Um, regarding Jake Yap's idea of using renewables to create hydrogen for power and its subsequent poo-pooing by an emailer, I attach links to two projects in operation using hydrogen for power in Scotland. And one is uh, buses. In Aberdeen, a fleet of 10 buses in use around Aberdeen using hydrogen fuel cells and no emissions apart from water vapour. And then the other one is electricity from hydrogen fuel cells uh, used in Kirkwall Harbour, using energy from tidal and wind to create hydrogen for fuel cells. And uh, these are then used for electric power at the harbour. So good things going on with hydrogen Yeah, I mean, I'm slightly making this up as I go along, but, but I wish I had a guess it was obvious, but maybe there's a difference between the sort of into the fuel cells idea and then the sort of Jake Yap sort of transport it across many time zones in a sort of version of the Hindenburg idea, <laughs> presumably. Yeah, but the, the debate about the Yapster rages, rages on. on. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We're joined by comedian Helen Keane. Hello. 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 What's the connection with you in science? Are you from a science background? Because there, there, there seems to be, in recent years, science and comedy have finally come together. They have, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Um, no, I'm not really. So I'm sort of more from an artsy background, but I was one of those kind of really nerdy kids who really, really loved space. And so I always like had all the you know, like the little models of the space shuttle and things. So, yeah, so that's how I got into I did my first show about space, and then I kind of just kind of went from there, really. And you were the first comedian in residence at Newcastle University's Centre for Life Science Village. I was, yes, first and last. How did that go and what did it involve? It was great. It was kind of, I would go up there and I would um, sort of run workshops with researchers about how to talk about their research in a kind of engaging, entertaining and hopefully Brilliant funny idea. way to kind of, yeah, to just to really kind of make that connection with the general public. So we had people from Newcastle University and North Umbria and other sort of institutions around there and we just get them doing and it was really popular we had this uh venue that we would go to and it was probably maybe a 150 seater and we were sold out every month we had people really really wanted to hear about this stuff and, and you really, were sort of really... telling them to, to, to wise cracks about 
about yeah. you know, interplanetary galactic <laughs> yeah, I was giddly saying, doos. Punch that bit up a bit when you talk about, you know, death statistics from a particular kind of horrible disease. No, um, yeah, so it was kind of, yeah, it was still going actually. And can you remember what your favourite talks were? Oh my God, there were so many. Um, I mean, I always like the space ones. So kind of like people who are studying the effects of space on astronauts' bodies to look at the effects of working in an office on office workers, because apparently some of the same problems. So things like backs and things, uh, you can study what happens to someone in microgravity and that can help you with people who are in sort of weird positions because they're hunched over their desk. Wow, that's a, so that keeps on, because they say about the Apollo programme, don't they, yeah. that so many patents came out of things they either learned mm. from that or had to um, solve to get people up there in the first place. Yeah. And that still continues. Yeah, I think, I mean, there were some surprising applications. So, yeah, there's things as well, like looking into very, very dark skies and, and the sort of technology that they use for that. They also can use to look at um, eye problems and because, again, you're looking into this, it's all the stuff about light and, and picking up really, really tiny, tiny gridding of light and differences in light and you can actually use that for eye surgery so you've brought some ideas with you helen um what's what's the first one? Oh, well i was thinking about social media and i was thinking about how see i'm, I'm established I'm, I'm a bit past the millennial generation but just things like how so much of it is about competitiveness so people put things on instagram or whatever and it's like look at my brilliant life and i was thinking that there's a missed application here that you could actually so rather than sort of showing off you could actually bring things down so i was thinking an app which was something like how dirty is your house <laughs> so that when you have people come around you know how much effort to make so if i have some guests around and i know because i've seen on my app that their house is a complete tip i won't have to worry but if i've seen that it's super tidy i will you know get the gif out so you want more judgmentalism no less judgmentalism so the idea you is want that, more honesty as yeah, well you want to give me some I truth is what you're yeah, saying yeah i think so I was, that was that was and also just because i've read about something the other day so i was looking into sort of um, virtual reality stuff. And I don't know if you, I missed this, but apparently a few years ago, Google invented this thing called Google Cardboard, which was like some sort of, it was like a headset made I've of cardboard. One, I've got one downstairs. Oh, you've got one? You yeah, know yeah, about this thing? gave me one, yeah. Yeah, and then it turns your smartphone into a so virtual basically, reality. Basically, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a headset. You, you have to add your own elastic and you can <laughs> slide your phone into it. And it's it looks a bit like those old um, I can't remember what they were called. Were they called viewfinders? Yes, yes. Where I you'd know, have like yeah. a little slideshow yeah. going around that you'd click along. Different colours, red, it, yeah, red. It looks colors. a little bit like that, but you slot your phone in it, and then you're kind of in a in a VR world. It's a little bit shonky, but not bad yeah. given that it's made out of cardboard. No, I mean I think that's quicker, but they do look a bit. So I sort of think again that was the sort of negative side of that because you, you know there's a big problem when people sit around at dinner tables and everyone's sort of looking at their phone or sort of sneakily doing that. <laughs> well, if you kind of if you had those, and so if right if, when, right at the start of any meeting or any meal or something like that, if everyone put one of those on and you had to like I don't know watch back the footage that you've taken from various concerts and gigs that you were holding your phone up to take the footage <laughs> and then you actually had to watch it back because no one ever does and then you'd just be like okay this isn't all that great I'm going to take this off and I'm going to pay attention to the situation that I'm in. So instead of having this perfect idealised version of life that we see on social media you're actually using the things that people record and photograph to show how how yeah. drab and boring we've we've all got it really. Yeah, I guess so. So are we are we into this idea? Yeah. What I do we call that... it though? Anti-social media. That's not just that's reality, not bad. kind of a reality check. Reality, yeah. reality yeah, check. Yeah, just yeah. kind of yeah. All right, Helen, what do you have next? Oh, well, another idea. This is, again, uh, linking to the space thing. Have you heard, you might have, have the overview effect. No. no the, oh, well, because um, back, when, back when Apollo 14 was happening, Edgar Mitchell goes into space and um, he, it, it was kind of an odd thing in that it's kind of really hard for us to 
sort of get our heads around that. But in the early days of the space program, they didn't even, in some of the prototype capsules, they didn't put windows in. They didn't realise anyone would want to look out of the window <laughs> and look at the Earth or, so, or that there was anything amazing wow. to see up there. And so they put this window in and Edgar Mitchell's coming back on Apollo 14 and he just looks out the window and he sees Earth and the moon and, and he just has this kind of epiphany that, you know, we, we are all kind of in it together. We are all on this tiny planet. It's very fragile. And, you know, that's everybody on the planet there. And he sort of said, you know, he really wanted to drag all these politicians up there and say, you know, look at that, you son of a bitch. His words, not mine. Uh, just to kind of really get people thinking about the earth as a whole. And obviously he goes on to do a lot of environmental activism and things. Um, and I just kind of thought that would be just gen- for politicians generally. Send them into space. Yes, is, is a good... But also- some to come back and some yes, not to come back. Maybe not, but I think just all of us. But yeah, I think the politicians in space thing is a good idea. But also... They need- it's like that picture, the famous NASA yes, picture, isn't it? Earthrise, earth. yeah. yes, exactly. But also I think that... Because something that happens to a lot of people, especially if you've not been to space before, or even if you have and you're quite sort of hardened, is you get very sick in the short term. So if you had, sort of, imagine this huge conference and basically you've got to kind of, I don't know, hold Vladimir Putin's hair while he vomits into a sort of suction toilet. Bonding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you can sort of think that the, it would not only be the seeing Earth and this beautiful, majestic thing, but also being reminded of how fragile we all are. And human you would are. You get even. to choose like two people to go, to go up. Together, with. yeah. Maybe people who are having real problems with each other. So I just think generally politicians, but also so Trump any... and Kim Jong Un. Yeah, just put them in space together. Yeah. <laughs> Bonding experience. They'd be ill for a bit, and yeah. they'd kind of I don't know. They'd, they'd muddle around, through. They'd muddle fun. through, wouldn't they? You know, me, Jacob Rees-Mogg, <laughs> and I don't know. I'm trying to think of somebody else. Nigel Farage. You know. So you'd love to go on some space tourism with Jacob Rees-Mogg? No, not really, no. I'm Nigel trying to think Farage. of people who you're sort of different from, who you kind of, you know, would sort of... This is your thing about wanting to talk to people on public exactly. transport, but now it's large, in space. stuck in a space capsule Yeah, I think you've sort them. of taken us to a new level. Yeah. Who do you want to be stuck in a space capsule with? Yeah. I mean, I think I'd rather float around in space on my own than um, than, than any well, of the people you mentioned. That's just typical of you, isn't it? <laughs> uh, all right, I, I really like that. So, uh, this sort of uh, what was the overview effect? Yeah, the overview effect. It's, it's yeah. So it's like I mean, so people are actually looking to try and you know, in the future, there might be some sort of United Nations kind of yes. ship up there to do that. Do you have another one for us? Sort of. Yeah, it was just that I I was I think I was reading something about there's um I don't know whether this is true or not, but there's an increasing gap between. Uh, the way young people perceive older people, and that there's a sort of, you know, there's, there's kind of like there's a sort of political agenda sometimes. To Certainly true it. with the way Jeff regards me, isn't it, Jeff? <laughs> oh, bless him, <laughs> my old pal over there. Yeah, check in on him. Exactly. So, so, tend to go past his house in the morning to check the milk yeah, bottles. Exactly. Been yeah. <laughs> check if the curtains. Before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that. People kind of have, younger people have this kind of suspicion of older people and this kind of thing. And I was just thinking back to when I was a kid and because my parents were quite skint, so they used to go and just really like coaches, I guess. We used to go on coach holidays and I was always the youngest person there. My parents were the second youngest and there'd be lots of OAPs. And uh, I think it would be a possible, a possible thing that everybody should have to do that. Everybody go on a coach holiday. With old people, yes. yeah, with, go, And go on a coach holiday generally. Yeah, I think they need but to. But with, with people who are not their generation. Yes. Yes, very That's much. good. I like that. A magical mystery tour. It's definitely mm. this such a running theme about mm. people bridging the divide. We are bridging the divide. Mm. So talking to each other on trains, 
going into space with Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, and getting on coaches with... Well, pensioners from Halifax. In, in pensioners specifically from Halifax. <laughs> yeah. Did you grow up in Halifax? No, just in Yorkshire, but they'd, right. they'd go around before we went to wherever we were going, like Torquay or whatever. They'd go around all the different bits of Yorkshire picking up all these pensioners and then the coach would gradually fill up with, with older and older So people. whereabouts in Yorkshire are you from? Uh, just outside Holt. So, right. Oh, yeah. I see. I think it's good. So are you suggesting we organise our first Reasons to be Cheerful intergenerational coach trip mystery tour? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I can I can see the politician in you. How are you going to kick this into the long grass? Are you going to recommend an inquiry? Inter- interdepartmental commission to look at the practical <laughs> practical implications of this, consulting all all necessary stakeholders. No, I basically I basically buy it. It's bridging it's bridging the divide. But mm. I'm surprised that you're so keen on it. I like a coach. I like a sing song. So even if it's got other people on it, I like I like a sing song. As long as it's a sing song, I'm there. Oh, it's always a sing song. Karaoke. Yeah. So there might be karaoke on yeah. the coach. Yeah. I could lead the karaoke if the driver would let me have a go on the microphone. And then the coach goes into you know, since space. Since I haven't got a radio show anymore, that would be, it'd stretch that itch. <laughs> <laughs> but you have got two other podcasts. This is true. Um, Helen, where, where, can, um, where can we see you? What are you up to next? Oh, uh, the next thing probably I've got coming up is I'm doing a few shows at the Edinburgh Science Festival uh, in April. I think you should be the scientific comedian in residence for reasons to be cheerful, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah, you've you. got the job. Was there, were there many other applicants? <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, here we are in the outro, and I'm speaking in slightly hushed tones, and we're recording this on an iPhone, so it sounds a little different to usual. We're on location. We are on location at the Broadcasting Press Guild Awards. Where we won. I know. And it is nice to win, isn't it? It is. It's been a marvellous afternoon. I'm somewhat disappointed. No exit poll. I'm somewhat disappointed that... Ed didn't introduce me to David Attenborough. He made a beeline for David Attenborough. You didn't take me over to it's meet like, him. It's like George Ezra on steroids, isn't it? It's just like David Attenborough. When else am I going to get to meet I David know, Attenborough? Know, you just sorry. left me there in the corner. And Prue Yeah, I mean, Prue that's exciting. But David Attenborough. And, and you were annoyed at the Blue Planet for beating us in the podcast charts. I didn't charts. mention that to him. Weird that, isn't it? I got a selfie with him, actually. Dose. <laughs> You know, let's not distract from our success of our award, Jeff. I know. Fancy I, owe, I owe big thanks to you. And I owe big thanks to you. Oh. Uh, as, well, as well as everybody else who works on the podcast. Definitely. And your speech went over very well. Thank you. You know, Ed, Ed was agonising about whether he seemed humble enough, but I think, yeah. I think he did. I didn't want to be a humble brag. I wanted to be humble. Yeah, you weren't grovelly, but you yeah. seemed grateful right, for, the, for the award. Should we do our thank yous? We should, yes. So, well, I think uh, we should thank... Lindsay Todd, Alex Vice, Bryce, and Emma Caution, without whom this wouldn't have been possible. That's right. It wasn't for me, it was for you, type of thing. Yes. It was you, what you said, would you break up with somebody? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest, I do think we could have done it without them. <laughs> we could have just got some different people in. You could have done it without me, I think. Yeah, it could have been you and George Osborne if things had gone differently. I know, I know. Just think. If you'd well, taken you and that, David Cameron, yeah, maybe. If only you'd taken that job they offered you at the Evening Standard. Do you think David Cameron would have taken his particular pig references, if you know what I mean, quite, quite as well as I'd have taken the bacon sandwich references? Yeah, perhaps you're right. Right, let's thank our guests for this week. Yes, yeah, so you, huh? Karkinen. Yuha Karkinen. Very good pronunciation. Thank you very much. Matt Downey from Crisis and Rebecca Evans. Yeah. Also, thanks to brilliant comedian Helen Keane for coming in and sharing her ideas with us. And I think we should thank Gail Lofthouse, our announcer. And um, we should thank uh, James Deacon, who 
yeah. did our identity. Yeah, and, and Steve, who did our music. music. And, and Emily Power, who yeah. does our artwork. Did they, uh, did, did they record these awards we've been at? Are they filmed or... Uh... Anything like that? Didn't say. Oh, then, you know, we definitely mentioned all those people in our speech as well, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> did you notice that they sat us on table number 10? We didn't know they were having a go. I think it was a nice little treat for you. Look, you there's Ed at number 10. Plus, I'm going to get to number 10. Yeah. <laughs> He's been the award-winning Jeff Lloyd. He's been the very humble Ed Miliband. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Mm-hmm.